Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. And welcome. Lovely having you back on the show. Thanks so much. Thanks for inviting me. So listen, you've been very busy besides, you know, working and doing your normal job. You're writing books which is incredible. And, and I love that you're writing books and I love that we get to experience the behind the scenes um, in an ER room, in a hospital, um, you know, the, the emergency, the good, the bad, the ugly. So Saving a Stranger's Life, um, your first book, The Diary of an Emergency Room Doctor, how was that received, Anne? I think it did pretty well. Um, people seem to really enjoy it. They seem to, yeah, they really liked it. And um, Everyone is wait, waiting for me to send the sequel. And um, so now it's ready and it's out there. So if you enjoyed the first one, you'll probably enjoy the second one. So you talk about different encounters with patients in the emergency room, all these funny stories. But before we go into that, um, and we probably mentioned it in our first interview as well, what's so interesting is you studied psychology before you became a doctor. So you've got an incredible background, the human behavior and how people are under pressure, how they are, how, how different people respond. Have you found that that's helped you as an ER doctor, Anne? Yes, I think it, it, it does. I mean, the, the study of psychology, I think, is quite different to practicing as a psychologist. So, you know, theoretically, um, in theory, when, you, when you, you study first, second and third year psychology, you kind of get more of a sense of the different theories of personality and different theories of pathology. Mm-hmm. I think you only really kind of get first-hand to grips with that probably in your clinical years but sure it, it, it's um it, it it certainly does stand you in in good stead but I think probably life is also a good uh, coach on that front yeah I suppose and I mean you, you I, I, I can imagine that working where you work and under those kind of conditions you're learning very quickly about people under pressure so and how I mean as I said December 2020 that's when we first met um so to speak and that was really you know COVID it was you know we we were it was a very hectic time. We're going to take a, a quick break, Anne. And after the break, before we talk about the book, just give us an idea from, from your perspective, what you've seen, the changes since then, if any. Um, have, you, have you seen improvements? Have you seen, yeah, just some of your stories. A quick break. We'll be right back. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. On DL, the DL Link Show. I hope you're checking in today. Um, I have Anne Bacard on the show. Anne is a medical doctor and she's also an author. This is her second book that we're talking about, Holding My Breath, which is a candid and heartbreaking and very funny memoir all about life in one of Joburg's busiest emergency rooms. Um, and Anne, just before the break, I said the last time we had chatted, we were discussing your first book. It was December 2020. We were in it, this world of COVID. And and I've just asked the question: Have you seen? I mean, what what is it like in terms of your experience? I know that the, the, the tremendous pressure you and your team have been under, um, losing team members. How is it now? It's, we're not posted, certainly not post, but but how is it now that we're well into COVID or maybe moving, I don't know, out of it? I don't know. We, we can't really say. But have you seen change, movement, shift? Yes, it's, it's hugely different. So at the, at the moment, the numbers are still pretty up, pretty high. Um, but the last, I'd say, month, we've been seeing a lot of people with COVID, but totally different pictures. So much more sore throats, very high temperatures. People feel really sick. 
Um, we've seen the occasional COVID pneumonia still, but nothing like we were seeing in like July last year. So yeah. the third wave, I think for us, or certainly so far, was just that we really nearly lost traction there. That was pretty much touch and go. The waves seem to come along every kind of between 90 and 100 days. So December, we had another wave. Um, and that was, you know, it sort of started beginning of December, went through until kind of the middle to end of January. And so, yeah, the numbers are definitely still very high in the ED. We're still seeing a lot of people every day that are testing positive. But as I said, different clinical picture, whether that's because people are vaccinated, maybe, or maybe the, the virus is sort of naturally attenuating, that would be a good thing if it were doing that. Yeah, but it's, we still, we're not, we're not out of the woods yet. Yeah, no. But uh, in terms of your team and dealing with it, as you say, you see, you see that shift. So holding my breath, holding my breath, and I'd love to talk about some of the stories, some of your encounters. But the, the first question really is, what, what would you, Sammy? I suppose it is a bit of a difficult question. But in ER, are you mainly getting people um, who come into the ER because of accidents, because of you know drunken behaviour, because of? I mean, what do you see normally in in the ER room? Well, it can be anything. I mean, I think that's the scary thing about working in the ED. Literally, you can have anything from a baby being born to a person having a heart attack to a silly complaint, you know, to some bizarre illness from over the border. I mean, anything can come through the door. The community here is not like a huge, huge alcohol-consuming community. So if you look at the bigger government hospitals, certainly when they went on lockdown, you couldn't couldn't believe the difference in the numbers. I mean, it just no alcohol versus no assaults, no motor vehicle accidents. All I mean, some, but extremely wow. few. So that was a huge difference. Um, so that really made a you know a big impact. I think you know a lot of people, you know, sort of it's, it seemed like a good idea at the time is a good phrase. You know, if somebody says you know here hold my drink and watch this, it's never going to end well, and could well end end up in the ED. So, yeah, so we do see some alcohol-related stuff. Obviously, we see assaults and motor vehicle accidents, pretty much anything, anything and everything. Yeah, and I suppose when those ones come in that are a little bit strange, how how do you react? Let's let's talk about some of the really strange ones that come in. I mean, I, I read an extract about a someone coming in and reported that the previous night his right nipple had moved away from its usual location. And it says here he noticed its absence when he looked in the mirror and he later found it in his armpit. And you said, wow, with a frown, I've never heard of a migrating nipple before. Let's have a look. And so you slid the door shut and you motioned for him to pull his T-shirt off. And he said, oh, it's it's moved back now. So, I mean, how, how do you keep a straight face, Anne? And what, what are some of the funny stories? What are some of the really unusual stories and or people that you've had to encounter? Yeah, so he was he was um, using substances and so obviously he had like a, a visual hallucination. So <laughs> there's certain things, I mean, in some ways those are the easy consults because it's actually not possible that his nipple moved and moved back. So I'm already assessing that this is a, you know, it's not a poss- it's not possible that that's a physical complaint. I think the difficult things come in when it is possible that somebody may have something medical wrong with them, you know. So um, I think one of the other ladies that I spoke about is this lady was brought in for a as a resus and she was just fast asleep basically, breathing color good, 
all her vital signs, absolutely normal. She was a good mid-70s years of age, you know, so you start to think maybe she's had a bleed in her brain, maybe she's an undiagnosed diabetic, maybe she's, you know, got an electrolyte abnormality. So you check all of the things, you run through all of the, the possible reasons that you can think of that this lady would be asleep. And you think maybe she's just having me on, but I can't see how somebody at 75 would just suddenly start pretending to be unconscious, you know. And um, eventually I sent her to the ward and when I saw the physician later, I said, what was wrong with that lady? I, I couldn't figure it out. She said, I also was absolutely flummoxed until the family came in and said, oh, goodness, she started using again. And I was like, using what? And they said, no, she's like had this long-term on and off thing with using heroin. What? Never my mind. Honestly, like if that was an unconscious 20-year-old, I for sure would have done a substance test on their blood. I did check her blood for drugs of overdose, you know, like sleeping tablets and that kind of thing. But it never crossed my mind to check her, her blood for something like heroin. I mean, in my defense, most heroin users don't make a JD or 75, you know. But it just was such an interesting moment of uh, just ageism, really. I just would never have thought of that. That particular person. <laughs> It is ageism, man. I mean, who would have thought? But I mean, you, I mean, you, you must be learning all the time. My goodness, did she, did she wake up and was she okay eventually? Yeah, she was fine when the heroin wore off. She woke up and it was no problem. But um, yeah, you do. You learn. Uh, I can tell you that I learned something new pretty much every single day of my life. So that's, and how that's you, a. And, yeah, sorry, you were saying. I was saying that's a really nice thing about this work is it's 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 almost never boring. Mm. Well, I was going to say to you, how do you manage yourself, really? I know that you live um, outside of the city. I know that you rescue greyhounds. Um, I mean, this just from a bit of reading that I've done. So it, it almost sounds as if when you're out of the madness, you, you need that quiet. But how do you manage that? And I mean, the emergency room is, you know, it's full on hectic, right? Yeah, it is full on hectic. I mean, it's definitely a while ago I was working in like a later shift. I used to finish it at half past nine or 10 o'clock at night. Honestly, I, I just could I mean, I'm usually a person who goes to sleep pretty early. I just could not go to sleep. It was like you get wired and that yeah. stays there for, you know, for a good few hours. And I think one of the things that's quite important is to not to sort of secondarily traumatize your family and friends by sort of recounting horror stories from the day you know, because that's not helpful for them, you know. So I think you do have to just play some sport, get out there, think about something else and pack it away, you know. I mean, I do sometimes kind of, I think writing is very cathartic. So, you know, you can write it down, you know, if, if, it's, if it's bothering you. I usually start early. I, I get to work at six. You know, if there's something that's still bothering me from the previous day, I'll write it down. And um, try and see the humour in it, which mostly yeah. you can. Sometimes you can't. Wow. There are some stories where there is no humour in it. But mostly mm. you can find the funny side. have great colleagues, work with a great nursing team. So that's, you know, we can sort of laugh and roll our eyes and have a joke, you know, between ourselves about can you believe that kind of thing. Not obviously at the patient's expense, but it's it's good to work with colleagues who can make you laugh, you know? Yeah, to be able to cope with what you have to cope with. And we're going to take a break. We're going to be right back. You stay with us. Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. I have on the show today, Anne Bacard, who is a medical doctor, and she's also an author. She's just written her second book, her first book, Saving a Stranger's Life, The Diary of an Emergency Room Doctor. 
and now her latest holding my breath further exploits of an ER doctor and so let's talk about the book holding my breath did you find that after the first one saving a stranger's life there were just so many stories um, that you thought okay well I have to write a second or is the second one quite different I think there were more stories Uh, the feedback from quite a lot of my friends is that the first book was sort of a little bit more technical if you want to call it that and -hmm. actually in retrospect, when I first started re- writing the first book, I actually started off by trying to write a kind of handbook for my fellow doctors because I felt that there were a lot of things that were sort of inaccessible in the ways that we were um, trained, you know. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So I started off kind of trying to go through what we call the H's and T's, which are the things that you look for when you do a resuscitation and, and the kind of um, simulations that we go through. And then I kept sort of digressing into much more of a a, a sort of novel writing style. So I kind of found myself really kind of in between a handbook and a novel. And then I kind of got into that style of just telling the story and sometimes giving a bit of the medical background because that's obviously important, but but maybe a little bit less technical. So, yeah, I mean, I was in the rhythm of writing and, you know, while obviously it takes a little while to get a book published, while that was sort of, underway that book was sort of already done so I just carried on writing and 18 months later there was enough to put together to the second the second chapter I mean that's really listen and that's incredible I mean it really is incredible to to write two books in that period of time but as you yourself have said that writing for you is cathartic um so you write it and you try and find humor you try and find something in in that situation so i think it's great and you know we are we are kind of morbidly obsessed with er and what happens just look at all the shows out there that we watch and we so interested in we just we want to know so i i love that there are these stories and there's the book out there. Let, let's talk about Holding My Breath. Why that title? Well, when I was discussing with the publisher what we what we were going to call it, she said to me, um, well, what have you been doing for the last two years? And I said, um, hiding in the cupboard. <laughs> and she said, you can't call it that. So I said, well, then the other option is Holding My Breath. And, and um, you know, I had this exact conversation with the physician because you know during COVID there were a lot of hospitals so you weren't allowed to go into the room unless you were fully dressed in PPE but that was also kind of unrealistic because like if you forgot something in the room to re-don a whole set of PPE was just crazy so I needed a patient's medication was an older person who was getting admitted with COVID pneumonia and the medication was in a packet like a checkers packet at the bottom of his bed on the little table there. So I literally took a breath and I ran into the room and grabbed the packet and ran out. And the physician was walking past in the corridor and he said, I saw you. You were holding your breath. And I, yeah, you bust me, you know. And he said, I also do. But I still got COVID, you know. And so did I still get COVID. So. But it's, it, it, it has been what we've been doing as medical professions is holding our breath. <laughs> I just want to say, don't do it at home. It doesn't work. <laughs> what, holding your breath? Is there any time you can hold your breath? You didn't think you are on somebody and you're holding your breath. It's not going to pan out so well. 
And um, working with um, your team when they know that you're writing a book, I mean, what's that like? Are they on their best behavior hoping you're going to mention them in the book? How do you how do you navigate that, you know, working in that environment and writing a book about it? Did you have to give people's permission? Do you use different people's names? How do you work that? So, so I change up a lot of the kind of information, like the gender of the patients, their ages, you know, I sort of mix all of that stuff up. So I very much doubt that anybody would recognize themselves. Also mm-hmm. because a lot of the stuff I write is generic ED stuff, you know. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. put it as really personal to a sort of favorite person or famous person. But there is a hot debate in the doctor's tea room as to who the favorite person <laughs> is. Because the blue-eyed surgeon everybody knows because nobody, oh. nobody, nobody can miss the blue-eyed surgeon. But um, the favorite physician is a hotly contested subject. Oh, oh. Do you find that people are kind of being very nice to you just so maybe you could add a little bit more information about the favorite physician <laughs> and it could possibly be them? Like have boxes of chocolates just miraculously landed up in your locker? No, 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 no. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. No, there, there's definitely none of that. I have to say that the team that I work with, I mean, it sounds really facile, but actually they are all my favorites. I mean, oh. they they are just they're just a great team. I mean, fantastic team, and 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 even sort of wider than our own team at our own hospital, the team at the academic hospitals that have sort of pulled us through COVID, and and the kind of all the the groups and the forums and the and the um you know information that's been pouring in and support etc. I mean, it's been a privilege to work with the doctors that I work with and to be considered a colleague by them and you know to have kind of pulled together you know I think there are a lot of people that could have just headed for the hills and run away and certainly all of us were absolutely terrified at the beginning of COVID and I think it speaks volumes to the fact that we stayed together stuck together supported each other you know I'm proud to be a member of that team yeah I'm sure you are wow what a what a journey you've all been through may I ask which ER room you work in exactly which hospital Mm, so probably everybody's probably figured out that I work at Lings Field. Okay. Aha, <laughs> uh-huh, we got it. Okay, we're looking out for blue-eyed surgeons and your favorite physicians. <laughs> but we don't want to you're gonna, stir. <laughs> you're going to go a long way to find a better team. It's a fantastic hospital. It's it's very um, it's a really really fantastic team. It's 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 really come along. You know, it's and when I say come a long way, it wasn't like it wasn't ever good. It just mm-hmm. goes from strength to strength. They're very amazing team. Just fantastic. So you just um, my next guest is um, Sylvester Musutwana, who's founder and CEO of Afri Nurse. And that May is actually Nurses Month. And it's there's apparently an Oncology Nursing Month and International Nurses Day, which was on the 12th of May. So, you know, this is a whole app which recognizes nurses for the good work that they do. And they celebrate local nursing heroes. And they do it. It's just incredible. And we're going to be talking about that in a moment. Just from your perspective, before we say goodbye, Anne, you know, you talk about your team. Um, do you Do you find sometimes that, you are these kind of unsung heroes that you you do so much and you get so very little in return. Like like, and does that even matter? But I mean, as you said, you 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 you're there for the emergency. They then move on, and then that's kind of that. Yeah. So I think 
I think that what became really evident during COVID is that you can have all the equipment in the world. If you don't have a healthcare worker, you actually have nothing. Right. So I think that I do think that we, all of us, are completely un, in a way, unsung heroes. I think mm. the nurses that get up at four o'clock in the morning and catch a taxi, and they were the people who were spending 12 hours of stretch in PPE, you know, with the patients. They were the real heroes there. But the porters, the the reception staff that opened the files, you know, all of those people came to work, you know, despite the fact that they could get sick and die or they could take the germ home and their family could die from it. I mean, I'm not to say, you know, anyone else could, but the ECMO chopper that crashed, you know, those guys were yes. going to fetch a to, to put them on on heart lung bypass, you know. Those are the real heroes. You know, it's, it's all very well, you know, to save your family's life or to save your child's life. But if you save a stranger's life, that's a that's a real ask, you know, mm. that's a real act of love, I guess. Yeah. So um, so I do think that healthcare workers are underappreciated in a lot of ways. But the other side of that is we're not really doing this job in order to be acclaimed as heroes. We're doing the job because we want to do our best. And I think that that's mm. something that I can say across the board for the doctors that I've trained and helped to train is nobody wants to do a bad job. You know, there's no doctor that I've ever trained that actually willfully makes a mistake or tries to harm somebody. Sometimes sure. they don't have the knowledge or they make a mistake, but it's not, they're not, they're in it to help people. That's why they become mm. doctors and nurses and, and healthcare workers, you know. Yeah, that's so true. So true. And I thank you for your time. I mean, fantastic. I'm, I'm looking so forward to looking at holding my breath and reading about some of these um, funny stories and, as you say, some heartbreaking stories, but certainly an insight into the ER. Now we know that it's at Lingsfield. <laughs> but, uh, I was supposed to say that. Maybe I should, <laughs> should not. I mean, I think it's a common knowledge. So. Anyway. Um, listen, we, we have, just with our community, we know Lingsfield uh, Clinic pretty well. But thank you for writing the book. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to the third one. I mean, you're obviously on a roll. So um, so, so continue. But great having you on the show, Anne. And all the best okay. with um, holding my thanks for the exploits. Thank you. Bye-bye. By Anne Bacard, a medical doctor and author. So that's the book, Holding My Breath, Further Exploits of an ER Doctor. And uh, Jakana are the publishers. And I didn't ask Anne, but I am presuming that it's, uh, that you know, you can find it at all good bookstores. So that's it. So the, the, the inside world of the ER at Linksfield Clinic. That sounds rather delicious to hear all the details.